Hello and welcome to the Trail Podcast. My name is Matthew Wordenham and I'm a physiotherapist and researcher working alongside the Trail team here at La Trobe University. Our guest on this week's episode of the podcast is Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a sports science journalist and is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Endure, a book that questions the elastic limits of human performance. Alex is also the author of the popular sweat science column on Outside Online and is a former competitive runner. Alex, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on the Trail Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. In truth, I've got about a thousand questions that I'd like to ask you. But for the purposes of today's interview, I wanted to start by asking, how did you first get into running? Yeah, it's, that goes deep back into the mists of time because I, I've, I mean, the first memory I have associated with running was in, in kindergarten. I remember we had a race uh, back, four times back and forth across the gym in my school. And I remember winning that race, actually, and, and being surprised because I was, I was not... I couldn't understand how I had beaten the bigger kids in the class because I sort of conflated being big with being fast. So so I always enjoyed running around. I started in, in elementary school. We had school cross-country run uh, races, which I competed in. And then in high school, I was on my school's uh, track and cross-country teams. And I, I started, I joined a track club to start actually training when I was 15, I guess. I had just turned 15. Uh, and at the time, I thought it would be I would just train for a few months for that that year's uh, or that season's track season. But um, I ended up liking it and and have been more or less training continuously ever since. That's thirty. What is that? Thirty years ago. Um, so yeah, I competed seriously as a middle distance track runner through university and then beyond into through my twenties. And the, the you know I guess the big transition would have been when I was twenty eight. I kind of accepted that I wasn't going to make the Olympics and had to decide whether that meant I quit running and, and you know, take up backgammon or or whether running would, would continue to play a role in my life. And in the end, it, it has, and I've continued to, to run ever since. But it, yeah, for me, it started with competing as a kid. And not just competing, running around the, the schoolyard and playing tag and all that stuff, you know. And can you tell us more about the role that running played in your life in your early to mid-20s? Yeah, the truth is, and I, I don't know whether I should be, you know, proud or ashamed of this, is that it, it was number one. It, it, it. I, in any given day, there were a number of things I wanted to accomplish, and you, you know, that's still the case. You're slotting in things according to their priority, and the, the, the least negotiable thing in my life was, was training. You know, it was working around everything else was working around that, and I was, um, you know, I, I, I did have friends, and I, <laughs> most of them were runners, and I, and I did. Uh, I was pursuing my education at the same time. I was I did a, a PhD in in physics in my early 20s, so it's not that I wasn't doing anything else. It's just that when there was when there was a conflict between, you know, when I was busy, when if it was a question of when I needed to travel somewhere to go to some a friend's wedding or something, everything had to be worked around. Well, I have a workout that day, so I need to get my interval workout in, and then we'll figure out whether I can catch the train or whether I can do this experiment or whatever. So. Um, you know, I, I, and I was, I was never like a, because I was a little bit fragile, I guess I, I, I was never running 200 kilometers a week. I was running, you know, more like 100 kilometers a week for the most part. Um, so it wasn't like it took 12 hours of my day, 
but it was it was the most important thing to me. And and you could say that's crazy, but you could also say it was it was really kind of uh, clarifying and motivating and exciting to have something that I, I knew what was most important to me in life. And and you know that's that that's a that's a thing that's maybe more rare than than you realize at the time. I have kids now, so I can't pretend that there's not. I, I know what's most important in my life. I have kids; that it's them. But you know, leaving aside family, it's like, yeah. Well, um, do I want to focus on work? Do I want to focus on this? What is what is the 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 do I, is having fun the, the primary goal? It's like when I was 22, the main thing was how fast can I run a 1500 meters? That 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 there was nothing that compared in importance to that. And how has that role changed now that you're a no longer in your 20s and B, now that you are a father of two. Yeah, it's interesting timing talking about this, talking about this because I actually ran, uh, well, it was today, Wednesday. So three days ago, I ran my first post, uh, post, well, I guess we're not really post COVID, but my first in-person race uh, in a couple of years. And my it was a cross-country race. Um, and it was interesting. I, I, had, I, I wavered back and forth. It was the, the, local provincial cross-country championships and some friends of mine wanted to put in a, a, a team in the master's race and i was sort of well do i really want to drive three hours to and then run this cross-country race uh you, you know what what is it that i'm trying to get out of it i had to think about it think about it a little bit and in the end i went mainly because my friends were going and they had a team but while i was there you know it was just a good reminder after a couple of years of, of not racing of like it's just fun. It doesn't matter. You know, this race wasn't, I'm, no, no one was going to select an Olympic team of like masters cross country runners. I, I, I wasn't going to get rich. I wasn't going to get any, I wasn't going to win because I, you know, I wasn't in the shape. So there was no glory. There was no ex, extrinsic uh, motivation, but it was, it was just fun to push myself. So that said, like, you know, in terms of what role my running plays in my life these days, you know, I talked, I said before in, when I was 22, running was number one. Now, in the various blocks that assemble my, you know, my day, it's, I don't know if it's three or five or, or, or seven. What I do know is that if I don't run first thing in the morning, if I don't, if I haven't run by nine, I probably am not going to run that day because two other things take over. So I do run, I, I, most weeks I run six days a week. Uh, off, often it's 20 minutes or 25 minutes. It's like I wake up and it's like, okay. And my wife has to leave for work in 30 minutes. And once she leaves to work, I, I'm in charge of the kids, so I can't go out. So I have 30 minutes to get up, you know, brush my teeth, get dressed, and get a run in. And so that's not optimal for training, but it's I, I do it. And so it's important enough that I make it happen. But it's also moved down the list such that if I miss my window or if other things are going on, if I have deadlines or if the kids are, are sick or you know whatever the case may be, there's all these other things that bounce it away. And 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 I should emphasize that. It doesn't bother me, you know. There was a time when that would have bothered me a lot, but it's like, eh, whatever. Like, you know, I, I'm I'm doing the best I can within certain constraints. You know, maybe another important point to make is that the reason I'll get up at six and and go make sure to get my run in before my wife has to leave for work is not because I'm worried about how how I'll place at the Masters cross country race. It's because I know my day will be better. I'll be happier. I also I want to be healthy. I think it's an important part of you know, fitness and exercise are an important part of longevity and healthy life, but it's also just an important part of like feeling good that day and and getting the day off to a good start. So it's it's a uh, it, it's a different motivation and it's it's a it's a harder to quantify motivation, but it's 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 not about doing it because I have to. It's doing it because I want to because it'll make my day better. Alex, 
I recently heard your conversation with Dr. Peter Atia on the Drive podcast, and you mentioned a knee injury that kept you away from running for more than a year. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that injury and more specifically how you managed it? Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I wish I could tell you exactly what the knee injury was. Maybe if I knew, I would have gotten rid of it sooner. Uh, and in terms of what I tried, like everything. So, so uh, it's. I guess I would it, characterize it as what we probably call patellofemoral pain or patellofemoral pain syndrome. My knee hurt. My knee hurt behind my kneecap. Sometimes it was a dull aching pain. Sometimes it was a sharp stabbing pain. It was sometimes diagnosed as a patellar tendonitis. Um, but sometimes, you know, there was crepitus in the knee, which suggested that there was crepitus in the other knee, which suggested that, you know, maybe the crepitus is meaningless, uh, crepitus being, you know, creakiness of when you sort of palpate the kneecap. I had an MRI and it suggested, yeah, there seemed to be a little bit of something or other going roughness in the cartilage, but it wasn't clear. The, the surgeon offered to do arthroscopic surgery and kind of scrape down my, my cartilage. I'm, I'm glad I... I opted not to do that because I don't think, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think this was 20 years ago. This was, you know, 1998 to 2000 was when I was injured. Um, and I think subsequent developments have made it clear that it's very unlikely that arthroscopic surgery would have done anything useful for me. Uh, I saw a specialist, I was living in England at the time. I saw a specialist on Harley Street in London who had worked with some very top runners and he did a gait analysis and diagnosed some some asymmetry in my stride um, with, with the, my right foot with my it was the bad knee the right foot seemed to roll inward a little more than the left foot on to, uh, after toe off and so he made me these asymmetric orthotics with a really big rigid instep on the right foot and then he, he I came back a few months later he did another gait analysis and it wasn't enough so he made it even bigger uh, rigid instep sort of forcing my foot to toe out. Ever since then, I now am aware that I have a really odd and asymmetric stride, and I'm not entirely clear whether that was what the orthotics were trying to fix or whether that was created by running in those orthotics for the next five years, which I did. So for five years, I, I ran in this thing that basically forced me to run on the outside of my right foot. And so I have I have this very, the wear pattern on my shoes is, is absolutely bizarre. Um, and I, I tried other things. I had, I saw various physio, like I saw everyone I could see. Um, I, I had a bunch of taping, so I would, I would go to a physio and get my kneecap sort of taped in various odd positions and then go try running. Ultimately, after about 18 months, I found I could, I was, the pain had faded a little bit. I was able to start running. Sorry, I'm giving you the very long clinical diagnosis here, or not, not, not clinical, the clinical history rather. Um, I, I found that I could run, that anytime I ran more than, let's say 20 or 30 minutes, about 30 minutes, it started to act up but it didn't really care how hard or how fast I ran. So I started running. Uh, I actually eventually worked up to four days a week where I was doing three interval workouts and one 30 minute tempo run basically. So I was doing no mileage at all, just running hard and actually ran surprisingly well. I ran a 348, 1500 meter run, uh, 1500 meter race. And my best at the time was 3:42. So I got to within, you know, six seconds of my best running four days a week and never more than half an hour. And then you know, I, I, after that, that was about six months of that. And then it was like, okay, I haven't felt it in a while. I think I can start increasing. And I did, but I, I, had, I was very cautious after that. So I ran cross country the next year. I went to world cross country. I was running, you know, 60 or 70 kilometers a week, 60 for the most part. And so I think that really affected my trajectory because I was never confident, 
because we'd never figured out what was wrong with the knee, because we there'd never been a sort of physical diagnosis, I wasn't confident that it, that it wouldn't just come back as soon as I started trying to push the envelope again. So, yeah, I don't know. I I I, I mean, it's a, maybe a bit of an extreme case, but I think that that is a sort of uh, not totally atypical thing with the knee, where it's like you're just not entirely sure. There's there isn't a magical imaging that can say. You know, I just read a, a an editorial or a piece in the British Journal of Sports Medicine about the difference between sports-related pain and sports-related injury. And it's like, I had sports-related pain, but nobody could tell me what my injury was. And and I didn't know how to think about that. that I found that very challenging. In your book, Endure, you questioned the elastic limits of human performance and acknowledged the contribution of both the body and the mind. Alex, in your opinion, do you think that the human body is nearing its physiological limit? I mean, yeah, it's a good question. I, in some ways, yeah, for sure. I think that, I mean, there's no doubt if you look at, in, in almost any sport that's been around for a while, if you look at the sort of curve of performance, it's flattening out. Like nobody's in, improving the 100 meter world record by two seconds or whatever. I mean, nobody was improving it by two seconds even 100 years ago, but the, it's, it, the improvements are getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, like, every few years there will be an academic paper that plots a bunch of world records on a graph and says that's it we you know we're basically at the plateau um and there isn't you know that this will be the last world record. i think there was a big new york times piece before the 2016 olympics i think it was saying is this the last olympics of of with world records um and and i don't i don't quite believe that for for a number of reasons um one is that you know you look at Usain Bolt. He improved, I can't remember whether it was one and a half percent or two and a half percent. He made a massive improvement in the 100 meter world record in that's got to be the most mature event there is, right? Like there's, it doesn't require a lot of technology. It doesn't, and you know, obviously we don't know. There's lots of unanswered questions about performance enhancing drugs and things like that that might have affected it. And surprises happen. And And the other thing is when we talk about physiological limits, it's really hard to separate them from the environment, the context, the environment of what we're measuring. So there's been a lot of controversy about running shoes with carbon fiber plated running shoes. And it's like, everyone's running faster and it's only because of the shoes. And that is true. But what I think often gets missed is that look back at the last hundred years of performance and there's a steady drumbeat of changes, whether it's cinder tracks or different, you know, lighter shoes or uh, you know, learning that you should probably drink during a, a, you know, a marathon. Like there's, so when we talk about our limits, we're always talking not just about sort of a naked human uh, in, in the absence of the context of training and professionalization and uh, rewards and things like that. So I think one way or another, we'll continue to see records in in all sorts of events sort of inch down for the most part. But uh, yeah, it's like if, you know, are we going to run a 150 marathon? Not without something that I can't foresee right now, but, you know, there's lots of things that we haven't foreseen. Nobody foresaw the carbon fiber plate running shoe thing. And and so, um, but yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't think, I guess, let me answer your question a different way. I don't think it's like, oh, we've discovered that limits are in the mind, which I do, I do think is, is sort of tr- true in a, in a certain way of, uh, of thinking about it. Therefore, once we unlock those with electric brain stimulation or with, you know, deep psychotherapy or whatever, 
we're going to improve by 30%. I don't think there's a, a, a huge untapped reserve. I think w- what we're talking about is on the margins. So where do you think the next big scientific breakthrough in human performance is going to come from? Yeah, I mean, if I knew for sure, I'd be investing in them right now <laughs> and, and then uh, pumping and thumping the stocks. But I guess there's a few things that I think have potential. Like the, the sort of ho- holy grail that a lot of sports scientists are pursuing right now is, is big data, machine learning. It's like if we know everything about every twitch that an athlete makes for in, during every second of the day, can we see enough patterns to be able to really optimize their training in such a way that they never work harder than they should, but always work as, pos- as hard as they can in, in training? And so there's a lot of artificial intelligence-based training systems out there. And of course, there's this whole uh, sort of world of wearable technology uh, and collecting data on, you know, heart rate variability and continuous glucose monitoring and all this sort of thing. I'm I'm generally a skeptic of this in that I don't think we have, that, that tells us a lot that you can't determine by, you know, asking an athlete, hey, how do you feel right now? Like, do you feel ready to go? Um, and also in terms of my own relationship with running, it's like, it's not really the direction I would like to go with my running to turn myself into a sort of uh, cyborg cr- creation as opposed to just going out in the forest and running. That being said, putting aside those personal feelings, if you collect enough data and the technology continues to advance and you have enough computing power to really sift through the data, it's possible that you're going to be able to optimize training in ways that will allow people to sort of flog themselves ever closer to, to, that, to their hypothetical limit. Um, Will that be a big breakthrough? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I think that's probably. I, I think what you do. I, my, my, let me just argue against myself here, which is that I, I don't think that sort of breakthrough is going to make the Elliot Kipchoge's or the Usain Bolts of the world all that much faster. But I think what it's more likely to do right now, you have a thousand or a million or whatever, how many athletes training hard, and a few of them manage to to sort of get through and and train themselves just right, almost by chance. And they end up being the Elliot Kipchoge's of the world. And you've got a lot of other people like me, and I'm not, I'm going to be cautious comparing myself to Elliot Kipchoge here, but people who care a lot about running and train hard and maybe have some talent at it, but end up getting derailed. They don't get everything they they could out of themselves. They, They train too hard or not hard enough and they get hurt. And so that's where I think this big data approach could, could really make a difference in performance is making performance more uh, consistent, allowing people to, you're more, uh, if you have a hundred athletes right now, that if, if, I, if right now I said, I'm going to train hundred athletes for the Boston marathon and, and they all did everything I told them. I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but let's say 10 of them might get to the start line in the shape of their lives, ready to run their personal best. And there'd be a, a whole bunch of other things that would happen to the other 90, uh, whether lifestyle stresses, training errors, injuries, um, not, you know, whatever the case may be. Maybe what big data will do is is, is raise that number so that you, you're not cha- changing the world records that much, but you're saying more of us are going to be able to optimize our training and be more consistent and reach get be in the shape of our lives on the big day rather than two weeks before or two weeks after or whatever the case may be. Now, Alex, before we let you go, could you please leave our listeners with three tips on how they can manage and maintain a healthy relationship with running? <laughs> 
All right, three tips. I did I did spend 30 seconds before the show trying to organize my thoughts on this. I, I, I guess the first thing I would say is is really to to think long term. And I think that the, the the biggest mistake I see, especially in people who are uh, getting into running, but even in experienced runners, is, is sort of overestimating what they can achieve in the short term and underestimating what they can achieve in the long term. So setting goals for what they want to do in a 5K three months from now uh, that are too ambitious, that lead them to train more than they should, lead them to get hurt uh, and discouraged, and and, and yet n n never imagining that in three years they could be doing X, Y, or Z if they were to just take a slower approach. So I would say don't, don't uh, maybe another way of saying that is train where you are, not where you want to be, and you'll be surprised at where you end up, but you can't just sort of decide that you want to be, uh, you know, two levels higher than you are right now and train and train that way. The, the next thing I would say is actually going back to the, uh, um, the what we were just discussing about big data, is to to be be skeptical about big data. Uh, and everyone's different. Everyone f finds their fun in different ways. But I I, I really think there's even if you love taking you know, taking your data and plotting it on Strava or whatever the case may be. Um, sometimes just go out and go how you feel. Make sure you keep in touch with, um, first of all, just the personal experience of being out there with your friends or on your own and, and you know, wh wherever you happen to, to train um, and not making it just part of a big data experiment. And if, you, you know, if, if, if the data is really important to you, you can do that just by you know, blanking the screen or not checking your data. You know, you can still record the data without checking it slavishly. So I think that's important both for developing your ability to push your limits to intu to feel intuitively what you're capable of, but but also just for having a healthy relationship with um, not having running be a, a source of stress, but having it be a, a way to relieve stress. And lastly, I would say, and this is the, you know, I think I was thinking about this in the context of your first or your, maybe it was your second question about like, what's my relationship now with running now as a, as a, you know, 45 year old guy um, is. So, okay. Sometimes, sometimes getting out for a run is going to feel like a chore for sure. Like there are times if it's raining and cold and dark and you don't really want to, and you, of course you have to just sort of push yourself to go do it even when you don't want to. But in the bigger picture, I would say, it's don't don't let it become an obligation. And if there's comes a time in your life when you're like, I, I just don't feel like running, you know, don't be afraid to walk away for a little bit. And I would say one of the good decisions I made is when I was 28, I I uh, I finished my track career in a not very satisfying way. I had a sacral stress fracture three months before the 2004 Olympic trials. Um, and so I ran those Olympic trials on off two weeks of running which was not not a lot of fun. And then I was like, okay, that's it. I don't have to run anymore. What am I going to do? And so I said, you know what? I'm not even going to, whatever. I'm going to just, I, I ended up running maybe once or twice a week for about a year. Uh, some of my runs were as short as, you know, like 15 minutes. I would, I was meeting up with, a, it was a social thing. I'd meet up with a friend and we would do a 10 minute tempo run. And then that was it. And after a year, I was like, yeah, I, I I decided I kind of I wanted to run. My my wife was a runner and 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 I was like, oh, I want to be able to keep up with. Or she was my fiance at the time. I want to be able to keep up with my fiance. I started doing a little bit more, and I gradually got drawn back into it. But having had that experience of 
giving myself the option of seeing, hey, what's it going to be like? Is life going to be really wonderful if I stop running? I was like, no, I, right? it's not wonderful. I just I'm less fit. That's all. And I, you know, I get less exercise. And so I, now now I know that I'm here by by choice. I, I, I know that I've chosen to run and it's not just a habit that I'm persisting because I I'm too scared to, to, to you know, consider doing anything else. So I guess that that's there's different ways. It depends on who, who you know, what where you are in life and what your reasons for running are. But but don't be afraid to reevaluate them. And there may be if you decide for six months that, you know, what you don't need to train and race. You're just going to jog two or three times a week. Uh, that's fine. And, and you may well find I suspect you will find that actually you do want to train a little more later or maybe you won't. But but that's that's you know, there are other things in life other than running. Uh, I've heard, although I can't confirm. Alex, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the trail podcast today. If our listeners are interested in learning more about human performance, where can they find you? Probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter, where my handle is sweat science, all one word. Um, I do have a website, alexhutchinson.net, that has been updated as recently as 2014 or something like that. But uh, yeah, Twitter, anytime I have a new article or anything like that, or if I see other stuff that I find interesting, I tend tend to post it on Twitter. And and, uh, uh, yeah, so that's a good place to find me. And my, oh yeah, my, my uh, articles are on uh, Outside Magazine is where my sweat, sweat science articles appear five times a month. So that's a good place too. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Trail Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to share it with family and friends with and without knee pain. If you're interested in learning more, you can find us on Twitter at Latrobe SEM or Facebook at Latrobe SEMRC. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Trail Podcast.